welcome to the ICAW Insights in Focus podcast. I'm Philippa Lamb, and for our last podcast of 2022, we're reviewing the year and the economic and political upheavals that have made it so very turbulent. Back in January, with the worst of the pandemic behind us, hopes were high that 2022 would see a return to normality, or at least stability. But no, February saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine, And by the end of the year, we'd seen inflation at a 40-year high, cycled through no less than three prime ministers, and capped it all off with so-called Big Bang 2.0, the government's proposed post-Brexit reforms to the financial services sector. With me to look back at this extraordinary year, I'm joined by Francis Hark, Chief Economist at Santander UK, Ian Wright, ICAW Managing Director of Reputation and Influence, and David Williamson, political editor at the Sunday Express. Francis, David, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. Thank you. Ian, is it snowing where you are yet? I'm in Northumberland, Philippa. I'm in God's own country. And uh, yes, it is. (laughs) It's snowing quite heavily. (laughs) The coldest day of the year, I fear, isn't it? It is. And believe me, I can absolutely vouch for that. Well, thanks for joining remotely. I'm glad you didn't have to get on a train. Now, look, in classic financial style, we're going to take the year quarter by quarter... So looking at Q1, Francis, should we start with the state of the economy at the start of the year? I had to, funnily enough, look back at Q1 because so much has happened over this year. So I was uh, looking back at the numbers and the interesting thing is I I think we'd all forgotten about the fact that inflation was already on the rise. So by December, it had already reached 5.5%. And that was partly because actually energy prices were rising. So Ofgem had increased the cap back in October and that had started the ball rolling. Yeah, interesting. I had forgotten that. Yeah, as well as food prices also were rising at that point as well. So I think whilst we were all expecting higher inflation for 2022, probably not quite where we ended up. No. Now, Ian, you track business sentiment. Where was it back in January? What were the expectations for the year ahead? There was a huge amount of optimism. People were starting the year with a great degree of confidence. It wasn't as high as in quarter three 2021. So as you say, we've plotted for quite some time, the best part of 20 years, what does confidence look like amongst our members in business and practice? The highest we'd ever seen in 20 years of the Business Confidence Monitor was in quarter three of 2021. It had come off its peak, but actually people were thinking, as you were suggesting in your opening remarks, you know, We're returning to normal. We're actually going to have a good year based upon domestic sales growth because people who'd been lucky enough to be in work had probably saved an awful lot because they weren't commuting, they weren't having the opportunities to spend, and they thought that that would have been spent throughout 2022. And that links in, I also think, with very much what Francis was saying, you know, that pent-up demand was starting to trail through in respect of higher inflation. Yeah, we were excited, weren't we? And then February 24th happened, David. As you say, the people in the previous year had been talking about, are we now finally going to see the roaring 20s? There had been yeah. so much optimism. And, and, and really, I think Boris Johnson's election in 2019 had created this, this situation where it was almost like a new party. And people were talking about how it's very rare a party gets a chance to renew itself while in office. And there was lots of young blood that was in. And people were talking optimistically in Tory circles of at least a decade in power. 
And then suddenly history returns and just bites people with it with a vengeance with the invasion of Ukraine. And suddenly this what it wasn't even a return to Cold War politics. It was like the worst of what we'd seen in Yugoslavia, combined with great power politics. And Boris Johnson's remaining admirers, of which there are a very ardent cohort, you know, say that actually this is one of the key areas alongside the, the vaccine rollout and um, the rescuing of the Brexit project that he'll be judged for because suddenly it's, it's Boris who, to be fair, even before the invasion, had been saying that Europe was facing its potentially its greatest security crisis in decades. France's initial economic response to that event? Well, it was really the markets. So we obviously, uh, energy prices went through the roof and, and oil as well, of course. So they were probably the, the biggest in terms of the market. Otherwise, I mean, fiscally, we waited until the budget for uh, announcements about how the government were going to help people. And there was uh, an MPC meeting. So that's the Monetary Policy Committee that sets bank rate. There was also a meeting of, of them in March. And they they, at that point, also, they raised the rates yet again. First time in a long time. First one was actually December was 2021. Okay. So that lifted it from, what was it, 10 basis points to 25 basis points. It was a very small uh, increment. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but equally, the Bank of England were the first to go. They went before the Fed in terms of raising rates. Which is interesting, isn't it? And in March, it was 75, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, interesting. Ian, the business response. It's really interesting because if you look back now, at the time it felt significant and of course it was a massive geopolitical event. But actually business, that confidence was still there. Uncertainty is never good for business confidence. It's never good for investing uh, decisions. But actually, I think looking back now, business was taking the events in Ukraine in its stride, uncertain, it was a bit of a slow burner, the impact that it had on confidence. And Philippa, if I just maybe respond to David's political points as well. We're recording this in early December. And today marks the first anniversary of when Partygate was leaked, announced. And I think you can the Conservative Party, the popularity of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister throughout the Covid crisis you saw a very marked shift the moment the party gate was announced. So that's when the shine started coming off the Boris Johnson administration. And we should remember, we're still dealing with Brexit fallout, aren't we, at that point? That's it. And it was almost as if there was a sense of perhaps appetite that's a strange type of nostalgia which can grip Westminster for, oh, well, you know, we, we, we're back to on, on a more comfortable ground if we're having a, a row with, with, with Brussels. And and certainly, however, the, the protocol was a, a fascinating issue because it was one of the moments where actually people in Northern Ireland were starting to actually see concrete effects of this new arrangement. And um, I, I grew up in, in, in Northern Ireland and you know, friends were telling me that they couldn't import baby clothes that they're ordering on the internet. And people try, I was trying to send a picture frame to my sister who still lives there. And they're like, sorry, we don't do things to Northern Ireland. And it was this sort of thing, hang on, surely this can't be right. And everyone remembers the, the video that's regularly shared on, on Twitter of Boris Johnson addressing a group of, I think, business people from Northern Ireland telling them if anyone asked for some paperwork to crumple this up and to throw that in the bin. Yeah, and there was this sense that something isn't working quite right. And the fact that this came, as we'll see later in the year, at a time when incredible demographic changes and political changes were happening, created the sense that um, 
yes, this, uh, this is a, a decisive moment in, in Northern Irish and Southern Irish history. I mean, Ian, as you say, it may be that business hadn't quite got its head around what the fallout from the invasion of Ukraine was, but they certainly were dealing with supply chain issues because of Brexit, weren't they? Slightly because of Brexit. I don't think actually that was the full reason. A lot of it was the logistical problems that were emerging for a, for a variety of different reasons, not least the pandemic. You know, container ships were in the wrong place and therefore that had an, an impact. You heard about, you know, pileups in the in Suez Canal. Brexit probably had some degree about the long tailbacks from the port of Dover. So this was all in the mix and it was difficult. And again, going back to Francis's point, had an impact upon inflation because demand and supply were not matched at all. OK, let's move on to Q2, because by April, we've got energy bills up 54%. We've got a further 80% hike predicted for September. Now, that was a huge shock for business, wasn't it, Ian? I think you're on a trend now. And I think but there are long-standing factors that are still concerning business. Businesses thought we can still stay confident that latent demand is about to come through. But I think what you do see is an emergence even more, and I said it's a long-standing factor, skill shortages. We can't get the staff in order to optimise our business potential and cost pressures were starting to really flow through. So you do start to see a very discernible drop-off in confidence, still very much in positive territory, but very much off its peak of quarter three, 2021. So France's sentiment in the city at that point is where? I think it would be fair to say that they all felt inflation was going to be a much bigger issue by this point. So you actually saw expectations for bank rates in terms of the markets increasing immeasurably. So they were up at sort of 3% by June. And obviously, you've got to compare 3% to the 10 basis points, so 0.10 of a percent that we had been seeing in the previous year. That's a huge jump, given that, you know, an awful lot of people would have never seen it above 1%. So I think there was this feeling that, you know, inflation was going to be a real problem and something that the Bank of England had to focus on strongly. Now, obviously, there were, a lot of that was to do with energy prices. A lot of it was to do with food prices, which, in all fairness, the Bank of England can do very little about. Raising interest rates actually doesn't make any difference to the commodity markets. But what they were worried about, and this sort of goes back to Ian's point, was that wages were starting to rise because people were starting to get the cost of living crisis. And also, you know, labour markets were very tight, uh, continue to be very tight. And so this was driving up uh, wage growth. And that's what the Bank of England was and still is extremely concerned about because that can fuel uh, inflation expectations and you get that horrible upward spiral. And we had kind of structural change starting to really show through, didn't we, in the labour market then? Because we had long COVID as a significant issue. We had mental health-related absence, post-pandemic, all those sort of things, big numbers of people. And then this change, you know, I think maybe was it about then we started to understand this structural change. It was structural change in the way people would work. I mean, you were telling me before we started recording that your team are in two days a week. You know, that started to become not a thing we did post-pandemic, but real and forever, didn't it? And you sort of felt that, I mean, certainly from my, my own experience of working with the team, you're trying then to find, well, how do we work best? 
you know, we want to be productive, of course. We've got all this work to do. And obviously, for a team that has to forecast what's going to happen to the economy, this year has been incredibly busy. So you want to be as productive as possible. But how do you do that in an environment that's quite different? And, you know, it is still the same that when we're in the office together, it is a lot quicker than when we're, you know, obviously we can get together on calls and Teams and Zoom and all the rest of it's great. It's not quite the same as being able to turn your chair around and go, what's the answer? What do you think? Yeah. How does this work? <laughs> How do you work, David? Do you wear a mooney? That era has pretty much come to an end because uh, it, so much of um, working in political journalism is just the, the bumping into people in Portcullis House Indeed. and things. And, um, and, and then, we're, we're, yes, we're, we're back in the, uh, in the newsroom on a, on a Saturday as we get the Sunday Express ready. And uh, it, you know, it is actually a joy just to see people in the flesh again. You realise what, what you've been missing. And um, it's, it's always interesting to see how tall people are, which you can't see on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as you say, in a newsroom, it's that in, the, the quick interaction. Isn't it the analysis, the the calling on people's knowledge base? Precisely, precisely. So we shouldn't forget, actually, David. Of course, I mean, other consequences of the Russian invasion. We had sanctions, didn't we? We Had the Economic Crime Bill, and for years there had been this sense that uh, money laundering was a massive problem in London, in particular. For decades, it's been a source of real concern that uh, there has been unbridled ability to come to the United Kingdom if you happen to be an oligarch from another country and hide your spoils. And finally, there's now a political will against the backdrop of Ukraine that this must come to an immediate end. And just thinking globally about that moment, I mean, China is obviously still closed at that point. The US, South America, what's happening? In the United States, you have the sense that um, Joe Biden and because people haven't been going through the normal summit process, you know, bumping into each other and having the, the conversations in kitchens and corridors at hotels, there was this sense that the international community wasn't quite wired together in the ways that it sometimes had been, that the personal rapport hasn't been there. And again, fans of Boris would say that actually he was someone who was able to sort of jumpstart the circuitry on the G7 and the G20 in saying that, look, this is a crisis where we actually do have to come together. Now, there are people on the other side of the channel who, who firmly argue against that and, and say that Britain's been very successful in selling itself as being the prime mover on that. But I think, I mean, the very fact that um, you know, Boris was so quick to be in Kiev and then the response that we later saw from Zelensky whenever his political career was, was on the sharp decline, there was a rapport. And in a world where actually of 27 news, 47 news channels around the world, the sight of this blonde-haired character, one of the most recognisable and idiosyncratic figures that Western democracy has ever seen, there on the streets of a capital that um, Russia has been trying to um, conquer, that was soft power in the midst of hard power. And it was a reminder that actually that type of thing does matter. Personality, politics, mm. charisma. All e exactly, exactly. I mean, and from Alexander the Great onwards, people have understood the importance of it. Yeah, charismatic leadership. We always talk about it going out of fashion, but it seems to, seems to stay, doesn't it? Q3, though, July 7th, events catch up with Boris. Yes, they finally do. They finally do. And it's fascinating to see, as we describe it here today, you know, we're talking about massive economic challenges and one of the greatest security challenges in, in how, since the Second World War. And yet what actually brings him down are 
people who were not household names getting involved in scandals. And it was the drip, drip, drip. I think what's sometimes forgotten is the economics were actually a major source of frustration within the Conservative Party. And the number of people on the, the sort of centre-right of the Conservative Party onwards who were intensely infuriated by the national insurance rises that were put in, you know, that, that was just something that would come up in conversation all the time. And there, there was this sense of, OK, there's the U Ukraine, things like that. Yes, we had to get through COVID. But here we are with a majority that many people in the Conservative tribe never thought they would see again in their lifetimes. You remember the, the excitement that there was in 2015 about, you know, that slender majority. Well, here's you know, this, what was initially an 80-seat majority. And they're like, well, why aren't we sort of remaking Britain? And everyone looks in their rear mirror and they see Tony Blair and they think of, you know, wow, you know, how he hit the ground running, independence of the Bank of England, minimum wage, all those and things. He's had a long time to plan. <laughs> he had had, well, yes, that's very true. And, and there was this sense of what's not working here. And I think we can see how that perhaps fed into the scale of the revolution that um, Mr Johnson's successor then tried to trigger. Indeed. So, yes, Francis, that's July 7th. Boris Johnson resigns. And what was the city hoping for at that moment? I think, to be fair, they all assumed it would be uh, Richie Sunak who became Prime Minister. I, I think we were all taken slightly by surprise when Liz Truss sort of came through. This is September 5th, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, very strange. But, of course, it, it is a small majority of people voting. You know, it's party members who have a particular you know, bent or view, who, who don't necessarily represent the whole of the UK. So, you know, perhaps it shouldn't have been such a shock to, to all of us. But I think um, it would be fair to say that uh, I think everybody assumed it would be, Richie. And then it's Quasi Quatting as Chancellor. Another that surprise. That was bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> Who's that? So City's <laughs> nervous at that point? Eyebrows were raised, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be you know, bad at their job. You're just gonna. It's going to be a wait and see what happens. But obviously, you know, other events sort of took over. So in the end, I have never experienced it. The markets being so volatile and just watching every day, you know, interest rate expectations rise and rise and rise, along with of course swap rates. And the reason swap rates are so important is because that's how you set your mortgage rates. And just watching it go and go, and you're thinking, when's this going to stop? But the one thing that really highlighted it to me was the same time that I think bank rate peaked above 6%, so that's where the markets thought bank rate might just peak at over 6%, was the same time that the Prudential Regulatory Authority, which does all the stress testing, the banks are required to do a stress test every year, they put out their scenario and in their stress test, they had bank rate peaking at 6%. And I looked at it and went, but we already seem to be in this stress. So that was supposed to be the outside margin. Yeah, so that, that was scary. When was that? Because September 23 was the mini budget, wasn't it? Yes, so that was, it was a bit after that came out. Ian, what did your members say about it at the time? This was the quarter where it really started to hit home that we're in a bad situation that's going to get worse. For a variety of different reasons, the energy prices and the energy cap you know, we're starting to really concern people. There was a real lack of understanding about where will this be. I remember speaking to somebody, somebody who ran their business. It was late summer and their normal, normal, average energy bill was £6,000 a year. They were quoting for the following 12 months £42,000 a year. 
so that sort of brings it home and he and he said to me I'm just going to shut up shop. I'm going to I'm going to hand the keys back. And you know, you can't go on like that. And there was a general sense amongst businesses that do you know what at a time when you really need absolute laser-like focus from the government. They've gone away and had a Conservative leadership contest. They're talking to a small number of people rather than what are the issues of the country. So this is the quarter, Philippa, where you see it, that business confidence monitor that we've had for the best part of 20 years, plunge into negative territory. This is the time in the late summer where people think this is really bad, really bad. And interestingly... Those long-term factors, you know, the, the business challenges, what keeps you awake at night as a CEO, as a CFO, whatever? It's always regulatory stuff. It's that red tape without being able to define really what red tape is. Um, it's skill shortages. You know, that's, you know, I can't get the staff I need. But for the first time in a very, very long time, tax burdens started to emerge. And I think that links in with what David was saying about national insurance contributions. It's a case of what is going to happen to tax rates here. So, David, in the newsroom, when the mini-budget happened, what was it like? What was the response in the room? It was a fascinating thing. I was in Westminster and there was a sense of, amongst people who were not fans of Liz Trust, which there was an interesting contingent, one person said to me, this is going to be the experiment which will finally get out of the system the big desire for, you know, neoliberal shock therapy. <laughs> you know, so th- <laughs> words to that effect, yeah. that at last this will be tested you know, to the nth degree. And there was a sense that in that quarter that this is not going to work, but it will fail so spectacularly that we'll then move on very speedily. But amongst other people, there was a great sense that, well, let's, let's not get carried away. There's no reason to get spooked because they're pointing to statistics about you know, how few people paid the top rate of tax, yeah. for example. And, um, and a lot of the things that made headlines were you know, quite symbolic things like ending the moratorium on fracking. You know? But again, that's not something that you would expect to cause a, a panic in the markets. Yeah. So uh, the majority of people were just stressing we need stability right now. But... I think in hindsight, the unfortunate thing is that these were policies that had actually been well trailed in think tanks for a long time. And both Liz and Kwasi, to be fair to them, had actually put their their names to to these ideas in in books long ago, long ago. And there was this great big worry, which they were taking very seriously, and there was concern that other people weren't taking it seriously, that the UK's growth rate, you know, was it ever going to yeah. you know, get up again and certainly the long-term fear and this this still does exist is you know with an aging population a welfare state that's getting more expensive and nhs which as you know as we've seen uh, as we're as we're talking as today we yes. you know isn't gets incredible because you need a step change in growth to pay for that 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 would be a revolution at any time but to do it at a time whenever so many of the indicator lights were flashing red panic um i think that's the unfortunate convergence but there are people still today who will happily turn up at any debating society and argue that we shouldn't decide that the experiment and the ideas behind it should be put under 40 feet of lead. It was a timing issue from, from that point of view. Indeed. So, I mean, just to remind ourselves, so yes, mini-budget September 23 and moving into Q4 now, by October 14th, quasi Quarting is sacked. Yes. And Jeremy Hunt becomes Chancellor. And if that was intended to sort of restore political calm, 
There was a great sense in the press conference, um, which followed very, very shortly in Downing Street, of just person after person stood up and said, well, Prime Minister, if the Chancellor is going because of this, of these decisions which you take responsibility for, why why are you still here? And it, it was incredibly awkward. It was one of the shortest um, Prime Ministerial press conferences. Every journalist asked the same question, didn't they? They did. And uh, when, when we left the room, there was the, a great sense that a, a very serious situation had become possibly un, unrescuable. This trust, she holds on until October 20th, and then she goes. And then, very rapidly, October 24th, I think it was, wasn't it? Rishi Sunak is elected unopposed. Yes, yes. And the Conservative grassroots really do cling to the concept of party democracy, which is a relatively new thing. And the sense of their leader being taken away it still does rankle quite a few people. And I think the debate about how leaders are chosen in the Conservative Party is something which we will see a lot more of Ongoing. in the next 12 months especially. Francis, uh, Jeremy Hunt stays as Chancellor and the city liked that, didn't they? Yes, there was some calm came back. So I think from, from that perspective, at least having someone who was focused on the, on the fiscal outlook and more importantly, wasn't going to not have the OBR do their report. And I yes. think that's one of the things that probably didn't help, Liz. That's a key point. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Because actually, you know, they are there to provide fiscal oversight. And I think the markets got quite concerned when that didn't happen for the mini budget. So the fact that uh, obviously Jeremy Hunt said, no, no, we'll do this with, you know, input from the OBR. I think that helped as well to calm. Yes, it was almost first phrase out of his, out of his mouth, much, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. So, yes, two seasoned finance professionals, as it were, and at the helm, everything's feeling slightly better. Ian, what, what are the members saying at that point? In quarter four, we've got the lowest confidence level from our members since the pandemic, and they think that things are going to get a lot, lot worse. And Francis, at this point, we have inflation at a 40-year high. It's 11.1%. Yeah. And... I think everyone at that point is trying to assess what the lasting damage of that brief administration is going to be. I mean, is there a number? Uh, there isn't a number. I mean, interestingly, from the perspective of the markets and rate expectations and swap rates, they have all fallen back. The increases that we saw have gone away. Having said that, I think the damage that was done, that will always be there. You know, to be fair, as an economist... I totally agreed with the fact that we should be, you know, looking at growth and trying to increase productivity. But I just didn't, you know, when I looked at it, when you're not going to do this through tax cuts and doing tax cuts when we're already in an inflationary environment really does seem to be, you know, a silly thing to, to be suggesting at this point in time. But certainly some of the other growth measures that they were talking about that weren't part of the mini budget, you know, things things around immigration had actually come out. Now then you thought, yes, I understand why that would be helpful given how tight the labour market is and how difficult it was for businesses to, to hire people. So it was quite interesting. It just, some of the things just didn't seem to quite marry up. Right sentiment. But the timing. Yeah. As David said. And of course, David, I mean, you know, life doesn't stand still overseas while all this is happening here. Um, in the US, we had the midterms, didn't we? And Trump confirming he would run again. That's that's right. And again, it, it, it was a situation where the Republicans had created a narrative of this red wave that was coming. 
And there was a great sense that um, even amongst President Biden's supporters in, in, uh, you know, in, in left-leaning periodicals, there was a sense of, oh dear, the communications hasn't, haven't been great and the economic circumstances certainly aren't great for the average American. So it did seem very plausible. And how, when it actually happened, and we, we've only just very recently had the last results, well, it hasn't been anything like the revolution that was expecting. So they, the House of Representatives is in Republican hands as expected, but um, the Democrats keep control of the Senate. And you could see the jubilation and astonishment in Biden's eyes that this has happened. And it, it's transformed the debate about his own future enormously, because Prior to that, you opened uh, any op-ed pages from an American newspaper and it was just full of people weighing in on the possible candidates who could run and yes. you know, the terrible troubles. So in a way, that debate hasn't gone away. And um, I think both Trump and Biden really need to actually make in the next year a very serious decision because they, although they've obviously given the, the public um, message that they're definitely running because if they do, that is putting both their parties um, in a very clear position, there will be perhaps a, a sense, if, especially if the economy does start to, to recover a little bit, that maybe this is time for new generations breaking through. But having said that, it's, it's very hard to dislodge someone from the, who was at the, at the pinnacle of their party and enjoys the spectacular powers of patronage. I mean, as Ian said, we're recording this kind of early December, but November, Francis, we did have that collapse, didn't we, of FTX, this giant company, the first one really to fall over, I think, wasn't it? I mean, how significant is that? It's quite difficult because, to be fair, it is not something from my perspective as an economist looking at the UK economy. I don't think it will impact that particularly but just interesting to see what happened and perhaps more interesting from a regulatory perspective of well you know what sort of oversight then does there need to be here in you know the UK but but also globally but that will be quite interesting to see what the fallout from that might be I mean obviously banks are already heavily regulated in terms of certainly the retail banks but the shadow banking market Less so. And then we did have that oddity, didn't we, in November? Paris overtaking London as the biggest stock exchange. Does it matter, really? Well, yes and no, I suppose. Although there is a debate as to whether that is actually true. Is there? Mm, apparently. So um, I know I know. there's there's been very articles written as to whether that, that is actually true. But you would think I that think was a thing would, that could be established. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? But I, I think more to the point of, I suspect it, you know, There'll, there'll be a renewed focus in terms of trying to get the UK back to position number one, because I'm sure from a political perspective, they would certainly want that. So, Ian, then mid-December, uh, we got, you know, so-called Big Bang 2.0, didn't we? This, you know, big overhaul of financial regulation. There are a number of nuances there. I think, first and foremost, it is a big package, if you think about it in a comprehensive manner. But it's not a comprehensive manner because actually some of the 30 or so areas that are going to be reformed are in various stages of development. So probably the biggest, if we maybe look back in a couple of years and said, what's had the most impact? It's the changes that we'll have in respect of investment from the insurance sector through reform of Solvency 2. Now that was announced sometime in November, so we knew that was coming. And although it's often been pitched as, well, this is a break from the EU, this is a good 
dividend from Brexit. Actually, the EU were going through their own reforms of solvency too as well. But actually, that could free up hundreds of billions of pounds, Philippa, in terms of investment into the real economy through improved infrastructure, through the green and net zero transition, through levelling up. That could be the big bang. Are you concerned about this? There's been a lot of column inches devoted to this potential to divide, go back to dividing retail banking from investment operations. That has received a lot of media attention. And of course, you know, we're 15 years away from the, the great financial crash where a lot of that was caused by insufficient risk management from banks. And you always have to tread that line between how can you stay competitive, entrepreneurial, risk-taking while safeguarding people's money. And we're sort of, as I said, 15 years out. That's half a generation away from the global recession caused by this banking crash. So we do have to be mindful of, I hope memories haven't forgotten what went on. That said, it's received a lot of attention, but actually it's quite minor relatively. It doesn't apply to those retail banks with any meaningful investment banking arm. Those are the safeguards that government have put in place. It might act as a barrier to growth at the moment for mid-sized banks. Let's see if it drives forward growth, given what's been said. I mean, the other thing that caught my eye was this idea of kind of relaxing barriers to bringing in senior staff from overseas. Good thing? I do think that's a big thing. Again, that's the what's the balance to strike between risk-taking and appropriate prudential regulation. So let's see what happens with that. I mean... We're quite new to all of this, Philippa, and I, and I hate to say this, but the devil will be in the detail and making sure that we'll see... Again, you mentioned Big Bang. It isn't just like a flash and immediate implementation. What we'll see over the next 12 to 18 months is a series of consultations on a number of these 30 or so areas of reform. And ICAW, on behalf of members and actually on behalf of the public interest, will be contributing um, comprehensively to these consultations to make sure that they are the appropriate balance. So too early, really, to ask you about implications for members, isn't it? Well, we need to... What's in the public interest? And, of course, the financial services is a huge part of the UK economy. We derive a lot of... Income. We derive a lot of soft power because we are a global industry based not just in London, actually. And I think it was very significant and telling that the Chancellor wanted to carry out his speech and announce these reforms in Edinburgh, which again is a major, major centre for the financial services. You know, the UK, not just London, is a major global player when it comes to financial services. We rely a lot as an economy. And in the future, with growing competition, with new players entering the market, we quite rightly have to stay ahead of the game. We have to stay ahead of the competition, but doing so while safeguarding the global financial system. And that balance is something when we respond on behalf of my members and on behalf of the wider economy, that's what we'll be looking at. OK, well, I'm going to wrap this up now, but I am going to put you all on the spot. <laughs> I'm going to say um, just in a word or two, David, would you say politics are in a calmer place now? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, so I think Westminster is in a calmer place. People are wandering around with a state of sort of amusement that that doesn't feel as if there's going to be a series of resignations potentially by the end of the <laughs> afternoon. I mean, one, one Tory said to me, I can't believe it, we're, we're, we're arguing about wind farmers again. Normality is back. Real thing. At the same yeah. time, there's also the awareness that there were so many purple patches for 
past Prime Ministers where things looked like things were back on track. And then, yes, things Indeed. things explode. Ian, business sentiment now compared to January? Bleak. But actually, the nature of business leaders, entrepreneurs, people who want to make a positive difference is they're resilient. They're inherently optimistic that, you know, that's what gets them up in the morning to be able to solve solutions. And so there is a sort of latent, it, it is bleak, but there's a latent optimism that, you know, their business will do well, they will push through and, and be able to deal with customers in a good and positive way. So, yeah, bleak but resilient. Francis, the economy now versus January? Unfortunately, worse. We are heading for recession and most of 2023 is probably going to look that way too. But on that, the point about resilience, I would say that, you know, humans are incredible in our ability to problem solve. And, you know, there should be optimism going forward that we can deal with some of these, these issues and come out stronger the other side. Francis, Ian, David, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to say you have all perhaps foolishly agreed to come back and uh, be with us for our first podcast of 2023 with predictions for the year ahead. Always a much more dangerous game. I don't suppose you'd care to give us a little round of mini predictions now? There will be drama from aspects of the stage where no one's looking. Yes, from left field. Yes, I'm just waiting. What's the next crisis? I've gone through trying to forecast Brexit, trying to forecast pandemic, trying to forecast cost of living crisis. What's what's the next one round the corner? Ian? I agree with Francis in terms of recession. We're probably in recession already. Energy prices being what they are. People don't have the disposable income in order to go out and sell. And that was the factor that was providing so much confidence in January 2022. That's been taken away from us. So it's going to be a bleak time. Thanks for that, Ian. Oh, you're right, though. Bring us down to bring us down to, <laughs> to to reality with a bump, back to earth with a bump. Thanks to everyone listening for being with us this year. We are always glad to have your company. Have a fabulous but relaxing Christmas break. If 2023 is anything like this year, we're all going to need to be at the top of our game in January. <laughs> <laughs>